What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I'm here with my co-host Dave Martinson. And Dave, before we start, I just want to give a shout out to someone with your likeness, with, with your namesake, I should say, Mr. David Price, for helping the Red Sox bring it home for the fourth time in my lifetime last night, World Series champions. I told you I wouldn't go too much into it, though, because I have a lot of respect for you. So we'll, we'll move on. But I'm very happy about that. We're, we got lots to talk about today on Nostalgia Pod. Little TV, little Netflix talk. We got four different albums, very different albums to be talking about. And then we got mid '90s, which I'm I'm actually really pumped to talk about. That was quite the movie going experience for me last night. I have an interesting story to mention from it, but let's start off. It's Halloween coming up, so when you're listening to this, it's either the day before or the day of Halloween, most likely, maybe the week of. But it was Halloween weekend this past weekend, and Dave, you went all out this year for your costume. You even ordered something off Amazon to make sure you looked like this guy who we're, we'll probably be talking about, what, sometime next week? Next week, Looking yeah. Like. yeah. Who did you go as? Freddie Mercury, one of the oh, true yeah. goats, specifically 1985, 86, one Stadium outfit. Yeah. Bought a jacket inadvertently from Pakistan. Didn't realize I was buying it from, from Asia. Interesting. So, so I shipped it across the land. You had that yellow jacket. Do people know who you were? Yeah, some people did. One person asked me if I was Michael Jackson, and I was like, I guess I get the idea. Colorful jacket? Yeah, I <laughs> like don't know. Like a thriller jacket? I don't know, like white pants. Uh, you know, David Bowie, I guess, could have came to mind too. But yeah, once I was like, all right, just go and just Google Freddie Mercury. And I'm like, oh, because it's like usually the second result you see is that outfit. So it went pretty, over well. Pretty iconic. Glad to hear that. I went as Bruce Springsteen. A couple people got it. A couple people didn't. But I wanted to go as a very easy costume and... Throwing a bandana on and wearing jeans and a white t-shirt was uh, really nice <laughs> for Halloween weekend. So shout out to Julianne, friend of the pod, giving her that shout out. Um, she went as Madonna from the 80s and she actually killed it. I was really impressed with her costume. People got it. So she, we, we got on the train to go into the city and the first person that sat down was like, oh, Madonna. And she, Julianne just like lit up. She's like, yeah. It's <laughs> like, Beaming. Yep. There you go, Halloween made right there. So I have been in the Halloween spirit this past weekend, though, because I've been watching a lot of The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, yeah. This show on Netflix that's been breaking out over the last couple of weeks. It dropped, I think it was October 12th or around there. And it's Mike Flanagan's, I think it's his first show for Netflix. And it's based off this 1959 novel by Shirley Jackson. It's pretty loosely based, but it's been really intriguing. I'm not really big into scary shows. I don't watch American Horror Story. I think I only watched like two thirds of the first season or something like that. And really wasn't for me, but I actually had a, a friend from my, my last job say, oh, even if you don't like scary shows, you, you'll really like this as, as like a mental health professional. And I was like, oh, interesting. So I checked it out and there is a big mental health element into it, but mostly just like family dynamics and the interplay between families. Um, but it's a really well done spooky show, probably the best one I've ever watched. And that's not saying a lot. Like I said, I don't watch a lot of them. I think I find it really intriguing, though, because they really flesh out characters. You know, I think in scary movies, a lot of times they forego talking about stories and talking about characters and really fleshing those out. And they just kind of go more for, I don't know, whatever the the big bad ghost or paranormal thing is at the end that's going to bring the big scare. And they lose a lot of substance for the cheap uh the cheap scares and that's kind of why get out was so great was it really had like an awesome backstory and it really fleshed out different characters and i think this does it's not on the level of get out obviously but really well, well done for a netflix show it's a great surprise only 10 episodes um even though they are an hour long so it takes a big chunk of time i have a feeling you won't be watching it but um if you if you do want to spook yourself a little bit 
Highly recommend it. Yeah, no, I don't have any interest in actually watching it, but, you know, yet another genre that Netflix is tackling, you know, uh, horror. Mm-hmm. Horror is really financially viable at the movies right now. Halloween, Quiet Place, all the Conjuring movies, everything Blumhouse makes, everything's super profitable, right? But horror mm-hmm. on TV, uh, still a little bit of an untapped well. American Horror Story, even though it's critically fallen off a cliff, it's still very popular. A lot of people really like it. Mm-hmm. You know, but other than that, has there hasn't really been anything that consistent. You know, there's a lot of one-off things, maybe like limited series or like specials. You know, but it makes sense to try and do something prestige-esque in that space. And once again, I mean, Netflix has proven time and time again that they are, you know, not allergic to anything. They will try any kind of genre. They'll take over anything they can. So it uh, seems like a no-brainer move in hindsight, and yet another win for them. No, absolutely, and. Yeah, you know, I th- I think the really interesting thing for them is if if they can either set it up where like every other year they're doing like Stranger Things and then this and you know eventually Stranger Things the problem like we've talked about in the past is going to be the kids are going to get old pretty quick and like what do you do with the story then I'm sure they'll figure something out or maybe they'll just find a different property but if they're doing like a every other year type thing where they have a short series that's spooky and Halloween themed I think they'll be just fine it's interesting we we talked a little bit about american vandal a couple weeks ago how we really enjoyed the second season it was announced this past week i believe it was like thursday or maybe wednesday that american vandal was not being picked up by netflix was actually canceled and the main reason for this seems to be that netflix is moving towards more in-house productions and american vandal is not that what do you think about the move and, and do you see a future for american vandal on tv or do you think it's done like i like season two but i didn't like it as much as the first season i thought it just was inherently less funny of a story this time around but i still thought it was well done and still had cool ideas um but would that play on like cable i'm not sure you know um I don't know if there's enough meat on the bone episode episode for it to be a, a successful week to week show. Probably there is, you know, if they, the creators endeavor for that. But I mean, would any other streaming service be psyched to pick it up? Like, I mean, Amazon Prime is probably the only real option, right? I guess mm-hmm. Hulu. I don't know. Yeah, I can't see it fitting on HBO. I mean, yeah, I think like this doesn't happen that often where sh- streaming services pick up a show that was already canceled. It's happened once in a while. Netflix has grabbed some stuff, but yeah, I mean. The weird thing, I think it's just it's just solely about Netflix's ability to control the property. Um, hmm. And like you said, I mean, they were creators will be shopping it because they 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 control the show. It's not Netflix's show; they're just distributing, right? So they hmm. would prefer to just control everything, right? It just affects the bottom line better. But it's on the other hand, it's like is American Vandal that expensive to make? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or yeah, I can't I mean, imagine it is. But it's like it's just stuff that like we don't really have any like insight on understanding is because first of all they don't publicize their ratings at all. We just kind of have like basic like com score guesses, right? And then also, you know, we don't understand how like the quote real estate works. Netflix is like yeah, sure, you can put as much shit on you want as there, but they still want to curate it. So, you know, a show like this that was really successful for them, if they still want to cancel it because they don't fully control it, you know, that really says a lot about how they're operating. You know, it's tough to make a declarative statement from it, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to see it continue for sure, but uh, disappointing development, no doubt. Yeah, it's definitely disappointing, and I, I 
I think it, it could be picked up by somewhere like Hulu as well. Someone that just kind of wants to have it as like a property is I think Hulu is kind of trying to figure out how they're going to build themselves out moving forward. It's not a bad thing for them to say, we'll throw a little bit of money here and have it on our platform. Kind of same for Amazon Prime. Um, just having it in their library, I think, in the long run is their goal. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely disappointing. Um, and, and Netflix, I think, you know, especially with Disney streaming on the horizon um, and probably a lot more other streaming platforms to follow after that. Uh, it makes sense that they're moving more towards this is our property because they know eventually they're all going to become very specialized and, and individual. So um, it's something to keep keep track of and something we'll definitely be talking about more. Any last thoughts before we move on to some music? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of following in the wake of consecutive weeks, Iron Fist and Luke Cage were canceled. Also shows that they were Netflix shows, but they were not fully controlled by Netflix. They are still produced by Marvel Television. So it's kind of the same idea. Um, American Vandal, though, was just a less obvious candidate for this, you know? like I've, Everyone knows Marvel's involved with those shows, but yeah, American Vandal, I mean, this is, again, it's kind of like how Brooklyn Nine-Nine was canceled by uh, Fox. Same same shit. Um now NBC was willing to, you know, pick it up and take it over, but American Vandal, if it went went to Amazon, will Amazon want to acquire a new show that they still won't be owning? Like you said, they'd have to be willing to just pay up just to have it in the in the coffers for the time being, you know. So it's uh, as we continue to spread everything around, as you know, every, everyone's making their own service. Uh, this is kind of stuff that's going to happen where frankly shows just aren't going to be made like this anymore it's going to you're going to be made by where you're living so well and i think that's actually a really interesting point and kind of brings me to something andy greenwald mentioned on the watch was you know he see, he thinks michael Schur is a name to watch for netflix to kind of go all in on and i think that's going to be really the next move is how these like these creators and these uh showrunners are just going to be given these huge contracts to say you know you're making content for our streaming service for our brand moving forward yeah. um, already doing it and yeah so it's it's going to be interesting it's almost like do you invest in like the streaming service that has the most people that you like that have created things in the past like it's it's going to be an interesting portion to the debate moving forward and really interesting um i mean there's a lot there we'll, we'll get we'll get into it a little bit more in depth some other time because we got a lot to cover today let's jump to joji ballads one you want to talk about someone that reminds me of Rich Brian, just in terms of as a creator, and obviously I think as a, label a cultural mate. person, yeah. <laughs> an Asian person, of course, as well. But the fact that he was a YouTube star as well, and then has become this like serious music, I don't know, creator. It's pretty impressive. And I kind of went in blind to this, didn't really know who he was beforehand. I left, I think, same as as Rich Brian presently pleasantly surprised like there was a lot there that i liked i don't think it was a perfect album by any stretch but there's enough there where i'm left intrigued about joji's future um initial thoughts on ballad ballads one then let's talk a little bit deeper on it yeah no i'm kind of the same boat i wasn't uh, like he was real name's george miller used to be just just a youtube guy kind of got the harlem shake craze going then he was filthy frank slash the pink guy and he released some music but i wasn't really familiar until he got on 88 rising when he released uh, in tongues that was his first project under the joji name i started seeing him on all those features rich brian songs the rising album we reviewed earlier this year and you know i was like all right yeah there's definitely something here with this dude 
And then Ballads 1 comes out, and I'm like, yeah, do I like every song on this? No. But even the songs that don't totally hit, I feel like there's, like, cool concepts, cool ideas on here, you know, in terms of, like, a, a spacey R&B singer. In a way, I, I almost, like, when Cuddy tries to sing, I hear, like, a lot of that type of vibe, very, like, spacey, cold synths, kind of lo-fi almost in a way. Um, and I think he does a really nice job of using his voice differently it's almost kind of like he's still trying to find like what's the right like lane for him in terms of singing because like, he can go he can go kind of high pitched at times but i think where he actually uh achieves the most on this and, and makes the best music is when he actually is lower and just kind of blends in with the beats um like yeah right or xxnx i thought were two great examples of that where or even slow dancing um in the dark it was also another one where he kind of just kind of blends in with the sound and he's not trying to let his voice carry it. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot there. He had Thundercat helping him out with this on uh, Can't Get Over You, which I was really impressed with. Um, so I think he has a lot of potential. I just, I think that the lack of substance in, in some of these songs, really not a lot to say, I think, yet. And also um, just the fact that he is still kind of trying to find the right footing for himself. Yeah, it makes this uh, probably in the end forgettable, but a good start nonetheless. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, like a song like Test Drive, for example, is one of the singles. And you listen to it, you watch that video, and you're like, I mean, I get the idea, but it doesn't fully come together. You know, it's like it's like mm-hmm. it's, ha- it's inherently half baked. It's like half a song idea. You know, yeah. but the fact that he even has half the idea is so cool. You know, that that's still better yeah. than a lot of people, especially in the space he's in. Um, I thought I think my favorite song was No Fun. Uh, Reminded me a lot of Peach Jam from the Rising album. Uh, just more like an upbeat. He's like really uh, actually like coherent and, you know, not blending in with the beat on that. I think because it probably because it was one of the few moments on the album where he did that. I think it really stood out to me. Um, but then he can make a song like Slow Dancing in the Dark, which is completely different and also really cool. And I think that song's really good as well. So, yeah, I think Joji uh, definitely not the most traditional path to becoming an artist but becoming more and more uh, viable every release. So it's uh, definitely a guy to watch. Definitely someone to watch. And someone that I think we've been watching a little bit, at least from from a distance, has been Mick Jenkins. Oh, yeah. You know, he dropped this this, uh, second album, Pieces of a Man, follow-up to his 2016 debut, The Healing Component. He's dropped a couple of EPs in that time. Um, Give us a little bit of background on on Mick. I mean, he's obviously another Chicago rapper, but who is this guy? He really busted out with... uh, the EP called uh, The Waters and The Way in Waves. And mm-hmm. at that point, you know, the Chicago scene is already really buzzing, but he kind of stood out as like a real storyteller. You know, he has like a more uh, bassier, lower register. And he, he kind of just sounds like wiser beyond his years. You know, he's not like making ignorant mm-hmm. music, but even for a lyrical artist, he does sound like, like older and like wiser, I guess you could say, right? And obviously... Judging from where he's from, he started popping up on other tracks with, you know, Saba, uh, Chance, all those guys, right? So, you know, just incubating mm-hmm. in that space. Uh, he's actually on a really good Chance song, Grown Ass Kid, the uh, unreleased mm. coloring book song. He's one of the featured verses on that. But then the Healing Component, his debut album comes out. And it's kind of disappointing. It's it's like overly dense, um, just kind of hard to hard to get into. Like, yeah, he's trying to tell a lot of stories, but I, it just didn't totally work for me it was tough to really take any songs away from it so i was really looking forward to the follow-up because you know i know the talent's there 
And I think this definitely was a much better uh, result for sure. But what was your take for someone as someone who was less familiar with him going in? Yeah, I kind of saw him as like an in-between between Saba and Vic Mensa and Chance. Like I, I found him kind of within that spectrum. I feel like he's a little more soulful than like Vic. Um, and he definitely brings it out in, in his music. But really, I, I think we've listened to so much Chicago rap this year that I was just kind of was like, oh, I, I know this. It sounds very familiar for this year. Reminded me a lot of No Name where I felt like it was pretty consistent through, but nothing really jumped out too much but overall just kind of quality i don't know i, I guess like padded locks was probably my favorite with yeah. ghostface oh, yeah. um that song was good but I, I guess and understood i liked a lot near the end soft porn i also found myself bobbing my head too so there was a couple of songs that really caught me but overall just was like yeah this is quality it's it's uh chicago right now this is the sound so i i think what i find most i don't know interesting about it is i do think a lot of these chicago rappers have a very uh similar sound at the moment and i you know chances album it has to be upcoming i mean it's been what almost two years since coloring book over two years over two years now yeah so you have to think there's an album coming i wonder if chance is going to try to do something different or if he's going to continue to lean into this sound because i feel like i I don't think he like revolutionized the sound but he definitely popularized it um and I think if anyone's going to kind of move Chicago sound in a different direction, it's going to be him. But I know it's rooted in, in jazz and all that mm-hmm. from a time before. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because like, you think about these guys and like we re- who did we review? We reviewed Tokyo, Saba, No Name. We didn't review Joey Perp. And now we're reviewing Mick and Smino's coming out in two weeks. <laughs> and Smino in particular is one who sounds the most like Chance, right? But then Mick... I mean, vocally, he's not, nothing like Chance, right? But it's the production, like you said, that jazz rap, that soulful influence. And, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to go away from that because I think it really works for them. And also because it's not, doesn't sound like mainstream hip hop, you know, it's inherently a good thing. So even if you're going to maybe uh, go over old ground, that you've been doing it's still different than what other people make you know so it's interesting that i don't know if there's a lot of urgency to really switch up the sound like that but i think all, all of these artists continuing to just grow as artists grow lyrically you know i mean uh like mick you know mick's a guy who presents himself as really lyrically really into uh songwriting but that doesn't mean every song he makes is anything special nor is uh all all the lyrics actually good you know i mean just because you try and be lyrical doesn't mean, you know, you get a pass when it doesn't totally work. And that was kind of my issue with healing component. So I think just having everyone get better, like Joey Perp, we didn't talk about Quarter Thing. I think I was away when it came out, but that was an album that I felt, I felt like Joey Perp actually kind of took a step back. He got less uh, unique because he started sounding more homogenous, but not in a good way, not in a Chicago way. So I think these artists, you know, Chance is kind of his own case because he's so famous. He's so much bigger and wealthier than everyone else from Chicago. But you know, like Vic, Vic, Vic is also interesting because he's gets so much shit online for all the stuff he does. But you know, I think the more underground guys like Tokyo and Mick and and Saba, like I think they just need to work on maybe consistency more than worrying about changing up the sound. But it's an interesting thought. Definitely interesting. I I think, like you said, this is definitely a better showing for Mick than his first album, and there's growth. So uh, hopefully he continues to grow, and hopefully he uh, can continue to 
bring Chicago rap because I, I think even though I'm saying I wonder if there's going to be a switch up anytime soon, it is probably my favorite style of rap right now. Like it's, I, I find it the most artistic and most pleasurable to listen to. Hopefully, you can find that middle ground of storytelling. Why don't we jump to Boy Genius real quick? They only released an EP. This is relatively new, well, a brand new band actually, uh, made up of Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. Now. I don't think we've talked about any of them, except for maybe I mentioned Julian Baker last year during our best of episode, just that what her album, Turn Out the Lights, was what, you know an honorable mention for me for the year. Um, really great album, uh, kind of chilly sounding in, in parts, and, and Spacey gave a lot of room to breathe, but her vocals took it home, and she's a, an amazing songwriter. And that's kind of the, I think that's kind of the appeal of these three is that they make very different sounding music, but they all kind of talk about a lot of the same things, but very directly, like they don't really pull punches in their lyrics. And I think you can kind of hear that on this record. Before we jump into it, I think um, an important thing to bring up with this is that they're going on tour together, all three of them. And they created this band as almost like a, a slight to critics in the industry saying, oh, you you basically put women in indie rock in their own category and don't see us as individuals, just like oh, it's women in indie rock. And that's kind of what the name is a, a nod to. Like, oh, you know, boy genius, but there's no, like, girl genius or woman genius. Like, um, So this is inherently supposed to, I think the, the point of the album in a lot of ways is to kind of bring that to light and uh, make uh, a point about that, that to critics. But I'm going to guess that you really like this album because I think that there's enough here that's different from most indie rock that you probably left saying, oh, there's, I like this a lot. Am I yeah. right? Yeah. I'm very predictable yeah. <laughs> when it comes to, comes to uh, modern rock music. I think the songwriting, uh, like you said, really impressive. Those three as solo artists, that, that's they're all their calling cards, right? Uh, I think now, what, I think three of these songs were already released before the EP dropped, so it, it's, it's pretty small offering. And I think a lot of these songs, they almost don't quite sound like collaborative songs. They sound more like, all right, here's the Julian Baker song. Maybe the other two are in the back a little bit, you know? So it's, I think it's, if anything, it's really a really great proof of concept for what these three could definitely make if they were interested in making a full-length project, you know? Um, But regardless, what they do have here, I think, is is pretty cool. I think um, Stay Down in particular, I really liked. Um, I I think that's one of the the singles that's already out, but it's the first time I was hearing it. And I think... You know, you know the whole thing, like the whole meta thing with the title. I mean, the women of indie rock. I mean, we reviewed a snail mail earlier this year. Same thing. It's the women of indie rock are the ones making the best indie rock. So rather than just you know use labels, just say it how it is. They're the ones at the top right now. So you know, they deserve that respect. They shouldn't all be lumped together. And again, I'm not super familiar with these artists, but I even I can see that off this. So it's uh, I think any any rock fan, it's a must listen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with. Um, what you're saying about how it doesn't sound totally cohesive i think the only song on the whole album and it's kind of the centerpiece is salt in the wound is probably their most um you know collaborative sounding song where you can tell that they're all working together and it doesn't sound like oh this is phoebe's turn or this is lucy's turn um they showed a lot of chemistry on this and i, I wish this was more than probably just a side project that but and maybe touring together will propel that forward if they really like like working together and it seems like they have a lot of shared interests but um there's a lot of potential here and not only is the songwriting great but i thought the structure and the production of this was just phenomenal um especially on a song like 
salt in the wound or stay down you can really hear like it's very crisp sounding um the instruments are played almost perfectly like there's uh a lot to like here so like you said if you're a if you're a rock fan of any sort and especially indie rock you got to be checking these guys these gals out let's jump to another gal that i think has definitely been checked out before and is very famous robin um our swedish pop uh savior i guess in a way <laughs> i don't know it's, it's interesting to think about robin because i know she's been famous for what like 20 years now over that something like that i've yeah. almost she's in her late 30s crazy and uh, yeah and she started what 95 95 was her first album yeah, and the way she carried her career, she was kind of like the iconoclast version of Britney Spears. You know, she like shied away from and didn't want to do the the big label deals and stuff, right? And she kind of just went on her own way. And I actually wasn't really familiar with, with her music, you know, from the time. I think that's partly because she inherently moved away from making mainstream pop music, you know, alternative pop, if you will, right? So it's interesting because she's really famous, but also like the people's exposure to her i think really depends on like how old you were like where you were when when she was making and what kind of music she was making you know it's a really interesting career but this is like her first album in what eight years i think yeah first first solo album in eight years she's released a couple eps and been featured a couple times you know it's interesting because i know i know some of the songs like dancing on my own show me love um which was her first like real hit back in the late 90s um and call your girlfriend I, i'd heard all those before but i never had really like explored her music and like her catalog that deep because I, I think this like her pop music like i think most pop music isn't super appealing to me all the time and i usually only check it out if it's something that i feel like i, I should know for the pot or for the culture um going on around me the culture hashtag culture um but it's interesting to see, like you said, like she's like the polar opposite of Britney Spears. Or I, I was thinking like Ariana Grande, as some, like a pop star that's released an album this year. that's similar um, in terms of critical reception. I think Sweetener and uh, Robin's new record, are, Honey. Honey, are the, probably the two best pop albums of the year. So, but they're very different. I think they they both bring a lot of different like substance to it in different ways. Like Sweetener. Um, I think is is a more classic sort of pop album, whereas Robin, I think, stylistically pushes herself and tries different things. Um, I mean, this is like it's like house, like Swedish house music, mixed with like I don't know, like synth pop. Like, it definitely depends on on where, what she's trying to say, and it also feels like her albums have an arc to it, whereas like Ariana's, um, it's just kind of like song here, song here, maybe not a lot of continuity among it um so it, you know in a way it's kind of like robin approaches this as more of like an artist and i think ariana more is like a pop star if that makes sure. sense no it makes a ton of sense i mean again robin chose not to be a pop star or be pop star on her own terms right and you see her in the music as well so it makes sense to me what do you think of honey as an album yeah i think i mean you listen and even if it's like it's overly synthy it's not like super like big sound or anything it's certainly there's no pharrell production on here like there wasn't sweetener but you know you're listening and even if like like i couldn't get into every beat i couldn't get into every song like i still appreciate songwriting you know i mean there's a lot of like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the heartbreak and uh i mean she actually i think whatever like her close producer and longtime friend passed away and that kind of contributed to the uh the hiatus so the neck a lot of that comes out on the album but then 
you know, I think two thirds through, she makes like Between the Lines, which is a really upbeat song, much more electronic sounding. I know that sounded really cool too, but it's weird because like the album was like built up to that moment, you know. Um, so yeah, even though I I I didn't love every song, I just I, in terms of the production, but it wasn't a bad production. It just wasn't you know my cup of tea per se. But I think the songwriting is quite strong once again. So you know I think this is kind of the album she wanted to make. She didn't feel compelled to make anything during this hiatus until now. So you can definitely tell a lot of time was put into it. You know she didn't make any concessions. Yeah, no, and I think I read something where she had been working on this, her single, Honey, and obviously the title track of the album for like years now that she's been trying to perfect it. So she puts a lot of work in into this, and I think it shows there's a lot of, of detail um, within the beats. And I, th- I actually probably thought Honey was my favorite song on the album, just because it's, I felt like it was like a, a much warmer sound, and it kind of brought in that that like two-thirds of the album where it starts to pick up, even though I think it ends, I forgot what the name of the last song is, I forgot to write it down, but kind of ends on a lower note, I felt like, but um, I thought like Honey, and then like the three songs after it, one of them was the one you said, um, uh, Between the Lines, and then uh, Missing You, I think was also near the end, maybe I'm wrong on that, but those were the songs that stood out to me the most, and yeah, Rob, I, I don't think there's anything we can really say about Robin that's gonna blow anyone's mind, she's quality pop, and that's um, you know, in an artistic way. And that's something you really can't say about a lot of pop stars at this point. So she's worth listening for anyone that likes music and just appreciates, um, I think, good songwriting and uh, interesting mu- uh, album development. So um, why don't we jump to something I think we're a little bit more enthusiastic to talk about? Because I'm feeling we're a little low energy right now, Dave. Just tired. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we got we to gotta talk about some skateboarding right now. Some Jonah Hill directed skateboarding. Mid 90s, his debut film as a director, Jonah Hill, sitting at 78% Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't check out the box office numbers. I can't imagine it's killing it there, though. No, I think it made like under 3 million. You know, it was, I think, like a thousand theaters. You know, it's doing well given the type of movie it is. But yeah, this is not going to win any weekends or anything. But it wasn't supposed to. It's an A24 movie. Well, when I see the A24 at the beginning of a movie, I almost feel like I know I'm going to like yeah, it. It's just like, like I'm going to be like, oh, this is like arousing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, starring uh, Sonny Siljic. I hope I said that right. Lucas Hedges, uh, Nikel Smith, and then uh, Olan Prenat, Ryder McLaughlin, Gio Galatia, and Catherine Watterson kind of round out, they round out the cast. Obviously, there's a couple we didn't mention there, but... Um, I was so impressed with those first three in this movie, um, Sonny, Lucas, and, and Nikel. I thought uh, all were fantastic, and it's interesting that Jonah Hill took the approach of, I'm going to find skaters and make them actors, rather than the other way around, um, which I think is what a lot of people are talking about with this, but it was almost at points like watching a documentary, because one, these kids were that good at skateboarding. But they really made it feel like they weren't acting at all, that they were just being themselves at parts, which is I, I think Lucas Hedges was actually probably the one that I was like, I least believed only because I've seen him in so many other things and playing this like, I don't know, tough guy brother who's really like, I don't know, emotionally ruined underneath mm-hmm. was kind of different because he always plays like a very nice, very off type for but, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But um, overall, I was just 
blown away with the acting performances. I think that there's a couple of, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that could have been better in this film, but overall just was great. What did you think of mid nineties? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. It's uh, interesting because we're in this just by chance, this great year for skate cinema. Uh, this movie Skate Kitchen came out uh, a few months ago. Same thing, cast real skaters. This movie about female skaters. Uh, Jane Smith is in this movie as well. I actually like that one a little bit more. We never got to talk about it, but another movie. It was very similar to mid-90s. I think there's just more narrative in that one. And then also Mining the Gap, which is a skateboarding documentary, which has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Uh, and now we have mid-90s, which is an A24 film. So it's like, it's a big year for, for skate, right? And skating. And I had heard going in that the movie was indebted to kids. And kids was a movie that I had always had on the list and never actually watched. So I watched kids like right before I saw mid-90s, like literally the day before. And having that fresh in my mind, I could definitely see some of the influences. Like nothing over overly copied or anything except for uh, the handshake scene where Sonny and the crew was like dapping everyone at the park or that like back uh, lot they were skating at, which is very much like that iconic park scene in kids where they're all doing these extended handshakes. So that was cool to see. And kids also takes place in the nineties. It was shot and it came out in 95. So seeing something like this, which is so indebted to the nineties by design, it was, it was a nice cool little homage, but I think what Jonah Hill should get a lot of credit for has his directorial debut and, even sidebar on that, Bradley Cooper, Paul Dano, and Jonah Hill all made the directorial debuts this year and all killed it. So good, good, good uh, year for actors becoming directors. But Jonah, he was so indebted to the '90s. This is a time where he obviously he grew up in, and you could see it. I mean, this obvious stuff, right? Like the Street Fighter shirt, the CDs, the fashion. But even just like he didn't make any compromises with the the vernacular, the the, the conversations the kids were having, which meant not pulling punches with. Uh, you know, fucked up language that uh, doesn't really happen anymore. So I thought that it was a smart, uh, you know, call for authentic- authenticity's sake. You know, in terms of the acting, you know, Sonny Soljic, I didn't realize it was him until I saw the trailer for like the fifth time, but he was in Killing of Sacred Deer last year, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie. And he also did the motion capture for the God of War PS4 game that came out back in April. So he's like 13 years old, but already slowly killing it right and then you know we're talking about lucas hedges we know that but nakel took me like seven or eight times seeing the child before i realized nakel smith was from fucking odd future and shit blew my mind at first because i was like i knew knock was uh skateboarding and like you know he's like sign of supreme and like really big on that but i was like oh shit now he's acting this is so cool and he was a revelation of the movie for me i thought you know again for a role that a movie it's under 90 minutes long there's not a lot of meat left on the bone but he still made a really good impression on me as a performer so overall i liked it but i do think there are some issues with it but definitely um even for its flaws i think every it's well done throughout so it's quite an enjoyable movie yeah nickel smith his performance is so well played and so you know He's, I mean, he's basically playing like the big brother, like the dad figure for the group. And, um, you know, kind of, he's all also like the character that's like wise beyond his years. Yeah. So I think, get out the hood. Yeah. No, like, no matter how he, no matter how he like played it, he had a, a really good role to be working with. But he did kill those like moments, like when they're just sitting and talking and, uh, he's talking about all the issues everybody in the group has. Or, um, at the end, even like the last line when he's like, you know, you take the hardest hits out of anyone I know. 
you don't have to do that. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't have to do that. Like the way he delivers those lines is like I said, it's so realistic. Almost at points. I like felt like, is this just actually who this person is in real life? Like to like play it this perfectly. seems like he was made to, to play that role. And Sonny Soljic, man, I mean, he is in what the house with the clocks in his walls and he's in, don't worry, he won't get far on foot, which I mean, it's like, he's in that as well. Two seconds. He's like, uh, you know, when he falls out of the wheelchair at the beginning and at the end they pick him up. He's like one of those skateboarders who's like, oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, he. So he's he's had a lot of a lot of good things going on. Um, very talented, and like Lucas Hedges, obviously. Um, the the whole thing with the fucking orange juice had me dying throughout. <laughs> I was just like, concentrate, dog. <laughs> it, I was unbelievable, and then at the end when he he gets the two and he shares one, which was like a really nice like way to like wrap that up that seemed like realistic, but just like so I was just laughing about this fucking orange juice. Um, yeah, so why don't we talk about some of the things you felt like could have been better about it? Yeah, I think um, the movie is is too short. Let's just be honest. I think there's <laughs> yeah. not enough narrative in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it's disappointing because you see the outline, you see the framework for everything. And I think that, if anything, this movie, despite its flaws, great sign for Jonah Hill's directorial career moving forward. Because this is a script he wrote, this is his first script. Um, and he made these choices to have it be, you know, a tight, a tight film. So I think, you know, with some feedback, he has a lot of uh, great people that in his circle. So I'm sure he'll continue to improve on this. But... You know, I mean, the whole crew, right? And Nikel plays Ray, and Ray's the closest thing to uh, a real character. But I thought all the skaters, uh, I liked all their performances. I thought all the kids were cool. But I mean, did we really? Did were they really characters, or were they just kind of like archetypes? You know, like stoner kid, quiet kid, uh, bad home life kid. You know, talented kid who tries kind of needs to leave his bum friends. You know, it's like we never got like the, the backstories were interwoven smartly through dialogue throughout the film. But we never got anything more with that. And like, Ray got close. You know, like, remember, I think the scene, he was talking to the pro skaters, right? And then uh, fuck shit fucks it up by being like a slob around him, right? Remember uh, Nakel, you know, the delivery, he's like, ah, shit, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, you know? And it was really genuine. I thought that, yeah. And I thought that scene was another great acting performance. But that was close. We got to really getting more into his character. The other ones, though, I just felt like, we, we never really got beyond the surface. You know, the surface was done well. I think they were they were fully realized initially, but we never got any further with that. And then even uh, even Lucas Hedges. I mean, his brother, uh, what's his name? Ian. Ian. He um he's he comes off at first as just like a bully older brother, right? And then we realize there's more underneath the surface. But we don't really get that. So I just think there were opportunities to have this movie flesh out the story a little bit more um i got i still like the movie quite a bit but you know i feel like if they could have done that a little bit better it probably would have been a better story overall yeah that, i think that was my overall gripe was I, I did feel like they gave like certain lines of dialogue a lot of weight to lift like you talk about um how none of the like skateboard characters were really fleshed out and i think they expected the part where Ray is explaining to Stevie about all the issues that they all have in their own lives. Right. And then you're supposed to like piece that back together. But that's a, that's a lot of work for that dialogue yeah. to be doing. And with movies, it's you're always better to, not to show and not tell. Yeah. yeah. So 
Um, kind of the same thing with Ian and Stevie when Ian's talking about what the mom was like when he was a kid and how she had guys coming in and out all the time and he would hear things that really bothered him and made it hard what for kind him. kind of sounds? Fucking <laughs> <Talking> sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that's the thing, is that this movie, for as, like, it wove in a lot of different themes and and like stories it wanted to tell like stevie was and was dealing with mental health issues like he was self-harming throughout the movie he um obviously him and ian obviously were very affected by their home life he you know they were both looking for community one found it one didn't um but and i think it, i think it touched on those things tastefully and did them pretty well um but in terms of fleshing out some of these things it was really like man you're, you're given a lot a lot of weightlifting for these small parts when you have a lot of time you know you can make this an hour 40 and really i think improve this um any other knocks on it or yeah, I, do we want to move no I, th- I think just to put a bow on that the movie's more of like a, a vibe than a real story you know it's more of that 90s vibe that that culture the culture is captured expertly uh the settings captured really well but the story well not horrible not bad just i think it needs a little more oomph and um, you know, not holding it against Joan Hill at all. I still think the movie's quite enjoyable, but I think if you had these critiques as well, I would recommend seeing Skate Kitchen. I think you'd uh, be very happy with that. I'll check it out for sure. Um, two other things I just wanted to shout out real quick: Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I mean, is there anyone better making uh, scores right now for movies? That a twenty-four I mean, money dog. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy, and the fact that. You know, not only did they have this really successful band that's touring at the moment, but they basically just get featured in these awesome movies. And I'm pretty sure they did this for very cheap if they didn't get paid at all for yeah. it. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, and shit, I mean, the soundtrack itself was dope, right? I mean, yes, <laughs> that's what I was getting to. Wu Tang. Um, uh, great mix of 90s music. And then. Sorry, I, I didn't hear you. What were you saying? Oh, no, I said a lot, a lot of good 90s music a lot of obvious picks uh, you got morrissey in there um mm-hmm. also i thought i mean it's you see from the first frame but it's in four three aspect ratio you know like the 90s like a crt tv that was really cool to watch it was shot mm-hmm. in a super 16 camera you know it almost had like a grainy look to it you know uh joan hill really put a lot of effort into making all aspects of the film feel like that the time period so i think mm-hmm. uh there's a lot of cool stuff in here even if not everything worked and I can't wait to see what Nikella does next. Yeah, I feel the same way. I was going to just try to point home about the soundtrack. I thought the way that they worked in the Nirvana song, Cobain's cover of Where Did You Sleep Last Night was like perfect and uh, subtle, but still like stood out. Um, and then also Wave of Mutilation. First of all, bringing in the UK version of the single is a deep cut for sure. But then uh just the way that they use that to show his like you know attempt to become a skater was i thought perfect so uh a lot a lot here to like for jonah hill um i have no doubt that this uh is just the start for him as, as a director so a lot of really exciting stuff um go see mid 90s but sounds like skate kitchen might also be worth your time if you enjoy this so we recommend both of those what do we got next week dave let's finish it up uh, and bring it home well Speaking of Lucas Hedges, his new film Boy Erase comes out, but I believe that's in limited, limited release starting this weekend, so it won't be by us for, for a bit. Uh, wildlife still isn't by us either, so 
Uh, that's going to be in New York and L.A. anyway. So we'll decide to talk about that as soon as we can. But Bohemian Rhapsody will be everywhere uh, this weekend. Talking about that. Uh, I know the reviews are not that great. But me and you are both Rami Malek fans and Queen fans. So I'm, I was interested in seeing it regardless. So I would like to make my own opinion. Um, oh, the guy that went as Freddie Mercury wants to see the movie featuring Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yeah, hot take, Interesting. Right? Um, Bodyguard on Netflix. We didn't get to it this week, but we'll be talking about the whole season next week. Uh, six episodes. It was the biggest new drama uh, in BBC history. Uh, uh, came out in August, so we just got it over here pretty quickly. It stars Richard Madden, a.k.a. Rob Star from Game of Thrones, who might be the next Bond. So, psyched about that. The Deuce season finale is Sunday. We haven't talked about it since the season two premiere. Uh, a fantastic show, David Simon. So we're going to catch up on that. And then music's pretty light. I think Takeoff, his solo album's already coming out. Um, only 10 tracks, though, which is pretty great considering the history Migos has. Uh, Action Bronson might have a project coming out. Uh, Homecoming, Julia Roberts, Amazon Prime show. I still don't know if it's releasing one episode of the whole season. But we'll probably talk about the premiere. And then, did not know this was coming out for until a few days ago, but it was pretty cool. The Other Side of the Wind, the lost Orson Welles movie that like took years to get completed, obviously after his death, is on Netflix uh, at the end of the week. And apparently it's pretty good. So I'd like to see that at some point. And then lastly, your favorite show, House of Cards. Uh, final season, Robin <laughs> Wright uh, is out. And we that, we're all out of time for today, so uh, let's. <laughs> uh, yeah, but if you want to hit us up at Nostalgia Pod on Twitter, we're gonna be talking about. It sounds like a lot of TV next week, some music and some movies. So uh, hit us up with anything you definitely want us to get to that maybe we didn't mention. Uh, leave a rating and review on iTunes, and hit that subscribe button on YouTube. We appreciate all the feedback. Don't watch House of Cards. Red Sox are world champions. We'll see you next week. And-